I want to begin by going to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, continuing in this series. This will be, Who Do You Say That I Am? Part 10. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18 state, When Yeshua came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of a living God. And Yeshua answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, it's wonderful to be able to fully believe, understand, and even teach the same answer that Peter gave by revelation, isn't it, brethren? Instead of believing something that simply cannot be substantiated by Scripture. Let me move on. In the past two messages, parts 8 and 9 in this series, we have dealt rather extensively with the words God, or the Hebrew word Elohim, or the Greek word Theos. And in part 9, I dealt with who Yeshua was in Hebrews chapter 1. Now on the heels of this, I want to examine two more scriptures that I believe are pertinent to the discussion, to the series. These scriptures are generally used to prove that Yeshua is Yahweh, the one God of Israel, or that Yeshua is God Almighty. But let's look at these two passages and see if they prove this. Keeping in mind everything that we've learned in this series up to this point, the first one I want to go to is in the book of John, chapter 20, verse 28. John, chapter 20, we take our Bibles and turn there. John 20, verse 28. I want to begin at verse 27 here. The Bible says, Then saith he to Thomas, and the he that is uh, speaking is Yeshua the Messiah. He's speaking to the disciple Thomas. And he says, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now this is one of the most frequently used passages by people who believe in the deity of Christ. Now let me just say first off that I believe that the statement that Thomas makes in verse 28 is directly uh, referring to Yeshua the Messiah. I believe Thomas is calling Yeshua his Lord, and I believe that Thomas is calling Yeshua his God. However, I want you to keep in mind that Yeshua himself said that his father, Yahweh, was the only true God in John chapter 17, verse 3. And he distinguished himself from that position in the very same verse. Now, I may have mentioned this passage you know, previously in this series, but I do want to go back to John 17. This is the same author, John 17, 
verses 1 through 3. These words spake Yeshua and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and so he's praying. He says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah, whom thou hast sent. Now, I want you to notice here that knowing what is taught in verse 3 is eternal life. A lot of people would venture out on a limb and, and think that, you know, even me taking ample time and effort in this series in so many parts to try to prove my particular belief system on this doctrine would just be a waste of time. They would think that it really doesn't matter. But in in verse 3, Yeshua himself says that eternal life is in knowing his Father and in knowing him. But notice that he says that when we are to know his Father, we are to know him, that is Yahweh the Father, as the only true God. Now, if we were to ask Yeshua... If Yahweh was the only true God, I would have to believe he would answer in the affirmative. In other words, he would say, why, of course, Yeshua is the only true God. And John 17.3 not only has Yeshua calling his Father the only true God, but it has Yeshua distinguishing himself from the position of only true God in the very same verse. I must listen to a debate held between a Reformed Baptist theologian and a Jehovah's Witness theologian. And in this debate, the Trinitarian gave the classic response to this passage or this verse by saying that it takes a joint knowledge of the Father and the Son for a person to have eternal life. And you know, I don't have any argument with that whatsoever. I believe that the passage would definitely teach that we have to know the Father and the Son in order to have eternal life. But that's not the argument that is coming from people of my persuasion and even from some Jehovah's Witnesses. The argument is, is that notice the classifications. Yeshua calls the one to whom he is praying the only true God. And then he says, and Yeshua the Messiah whom thou hast sent. The only true God sent Yeshua the Messiah. And so therefore, Yeshua distinguishes himself from that position in this passage in John when he's speaking about eternal life. Now that is very potent and very powerful. And we need to have this in our minds as a backdrop of John 20 and verse 28. You know, we cannot automatically say or believe that Thomas believed Yeshua was God Almighty. Just because Thomas referred to Yeshua as his God does not mean that Thomas believed Yeshua was the one God of Israel. Now this is seen in what we have learned in our previous messages and studies about the various uses of the terms Elohim and Theos in Scripture, Elohim being the Hebrew word for God, Theos being the Greek word generally translated 
as God in the New Testament. When we see that these words have a variety of meaning or a variety of usages, and then we see Thomas referring to Yeshua as God, we cannot necessarily conclude that Thomas believed that Yeshua was Yahweh God. And I think that that is what people jump to conclusions on before rightly dividing the word of truth. Henry Joseph Thayer's, or I should say Henry Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon, <clears throat> under the number four definition of theos, notice what he gives. He says, quote, Whatever can in any respect be likened unto God or resemble Him in any way, God's representative or vice-regent of magistrates and judges, end of quote. Here, under the definition of theos, this Greek scholar tells us that the word can apply to people, to human beings, other than Yahweh God. And in this case, in John 20, 28, Yeshua would definitely be Yahweh's representative or Yahweh's vice-regent. He would resemble Yahweh. There are passages that talk about him being the image of God. In John 14, he said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He shows forth the Father's character, his characteristics, his works. And so therefore, Yeshua is Yahweh's representative in the most potent manner out of any man that has ever lived or ever will live on planet Earth. And so we need to comprehend and understand all this. Furthermore, we have clearly established that Yeshua's identity is as the Son of God, and therefore Yeshua cannot be the God in that particular phrase. And so he must have the title God applied to him in a secondary sense in John 20, 28. Let's look back to John chapter 20. I want you to notice that a few verses before verse 28, we have the words of Yeshua in John 20, verses 16 through 17. In John 20 and 16, Yeshua saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, My master. Yeshua saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now here Yeshua is obviously referencing Yahweh as his Father, and therefore he must be referencing Yahweh as his God when he says, My God and your God, Mary. See, what is commonly not understood in circles of Christianity is that Yeshua has a God above him. He references him as my God here in John 20.17. And so if Yeshua has a deity or a mighty one, an Elohim, a Theos above him in rank, in superiority, then Thomas's use of God in reference to Yeshua in verse 28 of this same chapter couldn't, couldn't be a reference to Yeshua being Yahweh. Furthermore, not only does this happen prior to verse 28, but I want you to notice just a few verses after verse 28 in John chapter 20. John 20, verse 30. And 
many other signs truly did Yeshua in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Yeshua is the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of Elohim, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now we would think that the way that Trinitarian theologians press the point of passages like John 1.1 or John 1.14 or John 1.18 or places in John, that John, in their mind, wrote his gospel to prove the deity of Christ or that John wrote his gospel to prove the Trinity. But such is not the case. John tells us in verse 31 why he wrote his gospel. It was so that you might believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the one who has been anointed, the Son of God. The exact same revelation that Peter got in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, specifically in verse 16. And so, John 20, 28 is very easily understood to be using God in reference to Yeshua in a secondary sense. And so I do believe that Thomas was recognizing Yeshua as his God, but not in the same sense that Yahweh was Thomas's God. Now you may say, well, that would mean that Thomas had two gods. No, not necessarily. Harken back to what we discovered here, I believe in part 8 of this series. Now, for Yahweh to be Thomas's God, but yet for Thomas to call Yeshua God, in our Western mentality, sounds like Thomas has two gods. But to a biblical or Eastern mentality, the concept is extremely familiar. Let me give you just one example that should simplify things. In James 2.21, Abraham is called our father. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he did thus and thus? And so here James calls Abraham our father. But in Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, we're taught to pray by Yeshua, our Father who art in heaven. Now, I'm going to ask you, it's going to seem maybe like a silly question, but it's meant to be that way to get the point across. When we pray our Father, according to Matthew 6 verse 9, are we praying to Abraham? Well, you say, well, of course not. Of course we're not praying to Abraham. But yet Abraham is called our Father in James 2.21. Do we have two our fathers? Well, no, definitely not. Only Yahweh is our father. But yet Abraham is our father as well. In a different sense, in a different manner. So if we call Abraham our father, it doesn't have to mean that we're calling him Yahweh our father, or Yahweh the father. All it means is that we're referring to Abraham with the title Father in some way, shape, or fashion. Now this ought to clear up any confusion about Thomas supposedly referring to Yeshua as Yahweh, the one God of Israel. We see from the totality of the scriptures that that was not Thomas's intent. Thomas was simply referring to him as Theos, or God, in a secondary vice-regent sense. So there's no problem there, no problem at all. 
actually very simple. There is a, a yet another passage, though, that is often used by both uh, Trinitarians and modalists, even oneness Pentecostal believers. That's in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. I would like to go to Isaiah, chapter 9, because I do believe that this is a Messianic prophecy. Isaiah 9, verse 6. I just want to read uh, here in verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now the most common interpretation of this particular verse is that we have various generic names or, or titles given to the Messiah. And one of these names is Mighty God. Now, if a Trinitarian theologian is sharp, they will usually point out the fact that Yahweh, Yahweh God, is referred to by this same title just one chapter later in Isaiah 10, verse 21. Now, let's look at this. In Isaiah 10, verse Oh, we'll start at verse 20. Isaiah 10 and 20, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. Now here we have Yahweh being called the mighty God. But here in Isaiah 9, verse 6, we have this son, this child, being referred to as mighty God. The Hebrew word here is El-Gibor. El-Gibor. El being where we're getting the translation God, and Gibor being where we're getting the translation of, uh, of mighty. Now, let me first comment on the Trinitarian position. I find the Trinitarian position of this text inconsistent at best. And this is because the passage also calls Yeshua the everlasting Father. Yet, Trinitarian theologians are adamant in saying that Yeshua is not the Father. They are extremely adamant about that. If you meet someone who has the Trinity worked out to some extent in their mind, and you ask them if Jesus is God, or if Yeshua is God, they will say yes. But then when you then when you say, but is Yeshua the Father? They will say absolutely not. The Son is not the person of the Father, nor is the Son the person of the Holy Spirit, nor is the Holy Spirit the person of the Father. There is but one being of God that exists in three distinct yet co-equal and co-eternal persons. Now that is what they'll be very adamant about. But yet the text calls Yeshua in Isaiah 9 verse 6 the everlasting Father. What do Trinitarians do? Well, I believe they do something that is proper here, yet inconsistent in their own theology. The reason it's proper, let me explain it like this. They say, yes, Yeshua is called Father. But he's not the Father. He's not his own Father. Because various places in the Bible differentiate between the Father and the Son. 
a passage like Second John 1 verse 3 would call Yeshua the son of the Father. So he can't be the Father that he has. So the title Father must be applied to him in another way. Now, some of them tend to apply Father to Yeshua in the sense that he is the Creator. And I don't believe that that's what the passage is saying at all. But my point is this, is if calling Yeshua Father can be understood in another sense than the person of the Father, then why can't calling Yeshua God be understood in another sense than God Almighty, other than Yahweh, the one God of Israel? The oneness Pentecostal position, the modalist position, is definitely more consistent in their approach on this verse. Because they believe that it points out Yeshua as both God Almighty and the Heavenly Father. They believe, a modalist would believe that, as they would say, Jesus is, is the Father. And they would quote Isaiah 9, verse 6. And in response to the Trinitarian position, they would be much more consistent. Because here we have Yeshua being called Mighty God. Comma, everlasting Father. So they say that these words or terms are used together. They're both referring to Yeshua's deity. Thus, uh, God is only one person, and He manifests Himself in the mode of the Son. At you know, at a certain uh, point in history, and so at least they're more consistent. Now, I would take the the opposite end of the spectrum from the oneness Pentecostals, and and be consistent on the other end. I believe that just as the Trinitarians correctly point out. Yeshua is called Father in another sense. I believe he's also called God in another sense in this verse. I don't believe that him being called the Father means he is his own Father, and I don't believe him being called God means that he is his own God. And I think that that ought to be very clear. So Yeshua is called both of these terms. But I do not believe that this makes him the one God of Israel. Now, I want to quote something here from the Archbishop, and I don't know if I can pronounce this as properly as as some, but this is a quotation from a uh, writing called The Concessions of Trinitarians on page 118. Uh, from It's a quotation from the Archbishop of Utrecht, in 1602 to 1614, he was this archbishop. And he stated the following concerning Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Quote, The word El here, and that's the word he's referring to, <clears throat> the word here used is applicable not only to God, but to angels and men worthy of admiration. Whence it does not appear that the deity of Christ can be effectually gathered from this passage. End of quote. Now that's what he says on this passage. Now not only does he make that comment on this passage, but I want to just quote for you a few other translations of this passage. For instance, the Moffat translation of Holy Scripture states, quote, A wonderful of a counselor, a divine hero, a father for all time, a peaceful prince. End of quote. The New English Bible says, quote, In purpose wonderful, in battle godlike, Father for all time, Prince of Peace. End of quote. 
the Revised English Bible states, quote, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty Hero, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, end of quote. The Septuagint is found in the Codex <clears throat> Alexandrinus, translated by Sir Lancelot C.L. Britton in 1850. It says, quote, <clears throat> excuse me, quote, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty One, Potentate, Prince of Peace, Father of the Age to Come, end of quote. Sanhedrin 94a in the Jewish Talmud states, quote, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty, Judge, Everlasting, Father, Prince, and Peace, end of quote. The Septuagint is found in Codex Saticanus, published in 1851 by Sir Lancelot C.L. Britton, states, quote, The messenger of great counsel, for I will bring peace upon the princes and health to him, end of quote. And in the Tanakh, a translation of the Hebrew Masoretic text, it says, quote, Wonderful Counselor of the Mighty God, of the Everlasting Father, of the Prince of Peace, end of quote. What we see here is that there are various translations that recognize that the term El Gibor, translated Mighty God in the KJV here, of this child or this son, does not have to be understood as being the same Mighty God as Isaiah 10, verse 21. And this just falls right back on the heels of what we've discussed, I guess, in, in some sense up until this message, is that just because two people share the same title doesn't mean that they're the same person. And the Trinitarians recognize this. And this is where it really gets, you know, kind of hazy and foggy in my mind. I don't understand sometimes why they can't acknowledge what biblical Unitarians are presenting. You know, they understand that just because Yeshua is called Aviad, or Father of Eternity, or we'll say Father in this verse, they realize that does not mean He is the Father. But He must be called Father in another way, in another means, in another sense. Likewise, El Gibor, that title placed upon Yeshua, doesn't mean that He is Yahweh, the Mighty God. He can be called El Gibor in another fashion or in another sense. One simple example, as I gave on the Abraham issue, is in comparing Matthew 5.14 with John 8, verse 12. In John 8, verse 12, Yeshua says, I am the light of the world. But yet in Matthew 5.14, in the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua says, Ye are the light of the world. Now here we have the, the, the title, Light of the World, the same title applied to men other than Yeshua, His disciples, and Yeshua. That doesn't mean that people that have that same title applied to them are one in essence or being in some way. It simply means that they have the title applied to them in their in its own or in their own special or ordinary or unique sense. And there's no problem there. We understand that the disciples are really not Yeshua the Messiah. And that Yeshua the Messiah is really not just changing modes and he's really all of his disciples. These things don't even enter into our minds. And so Yeshua can be called Mighty God, or as some translations say, Mighty Warrior or Hero, 
And by the way, this is what Brown Drivers and Briggs Hebrew English Lexicon gives as the definition for El Gibor in Isaiah 9, verse 6. And this is a very standard Hebrew lexicon. Okay? But he's called Mighty Warrior or Mighty God in the sense that all power and authority was given to him by his Father. For instance, in Matthew 28, 18. And therefore he is the Mighty El, or in Hebrew, the El Gibor. He's had all this authority and all this power conferred or committed or given or handed over to him by the Father. And he's therefore mighty God. He represents God on earth. And Yeshua can be called Aviad, Avi, the Hebrew word for Father, and Ad, the word translated everlasting in the King James Version, probably better translated eternity. I think the New American Standard Bible has Father of Eternity, which is a better translation. But he can be called that because he is the Father of Eternity. To be the Father of something means you are the first at something. And since Yeshua is the first man to resurrect from the dead, he's the first fruits of those that sleep, 1 Corinthians 15 would teach this, then he's the Father of Eternity, or the Father of of eternal life, the father of the age to come. He's the first man ever to have immortality. I want to look here at Genesis chapter 4. This will give you an understanding of what I'm saying, or at least an illustration. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, Genesis four nineteen through 21. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. But what does this mean? It means Jubal was the first of all that handled the harp and the organ. He was the father of it. Sometimes George Washington is called the father of our country because he was the first president of the United States of America and so we have no problem understanding this in this fashion and so here we have two passages that are sometimes used in in a very strong and sometimes even a very hard fashion against people that deny the deity of Christ and do not believe that the Bible teaches it. But yet these passages are not that difficult at all to understand and comprehend when we allow the sum of the Scriptures to be true. Now, I've given my personal understandings of these passages, but I do want to add something to the Isaiah 9 and 6 passage in closing. I have recently considered another understanding of the text, and that it is that the name or the names that are given to the, the child, or the, to the son, in Isaiah 9-6, they could be one long prophetic name that is given to him that brings and gives glory to his God and Father. That is a possible understanding. What do I mean by this? Well, in the Bible, many men were given names that had meanings that glorified Yahweh. You know, sometimes they were given long names that meant certain things specific to the surrounding 
events or happenings in their parents' lives or in their life, you know, when they were born. An example is in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, where we have a, a, a child being born named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. You know, I don't think anybody would name their child that in this day and time. But nevertheless, Maher Shalal Hashbaz was the name of Isaiah's son in Isaiah 8, verse 1. And, and it means speeding to the plunder and hurrying to the spoil. And the name was given to the son of Isaiah, and the name depicted a happening in the lives of the Israelites at that time. And so, we know that Yeshua was also given a a name, a prophetic name, a secondary name, if you will, when we compare Isaiah 7, verse 14, with Matthew 1, 23. And this name was, probably you're familiar with it, it was Emmanuel. Now, many people would use this to say, well, Emmanuel means God with us. Well, it doesn't mean that Yeshua was God. Just because Yeshua was given the name Emmanuel, and the name Emmanuel means God with us, doesn't mean that that particular child was God Almighty. You know, I mean, there are other names in the Bible, such as Jehu. Jehu means he is Yahweh. Now, that doesn't mean that that child or that man, Jehu, is in reality Yahweh walking around on earth. It means that his name has a definition that promotes the idea of Yahweh or gives glory to Yahweh in some way. Okay? We understand that God was with us by a passage like Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it it talks about that Yeshua went about doing these miracles because God was with him. Okay, it doesn't mean that Yeshua was God de facto or God in a flesh body. It simply means that God was with us in a mighty way through the person of his Son. <clears throat> when we look at a passage like um, Ruth 1 verse 6, and we compare that with Luke 7 verse 16, we see in Ruth 1 that God visited his people in bringing them bread and food. That's what the text said. It says that God visited his people. But he did so by the blessing of the bread and the food. And when we compare that with Luke 7, verse 16, we see that when Yeshua did this miracle in Luke 7, that the people pronounced that God had visited his people. But it wasn't because Yeshua was God, was Yahweh. It was because that a great prophet had arisen amongst the people, and therefore God has visited his people. So just like God blessed people in the days of Ruth, therefore it can be said that he visited his people, it also can be said that when a great prophet arises on the scene, especially when the prophet is the the son of Yahweh, the only begotten of the Father, that it can be said that God has visited his people. It doesn't have to mean that Yeshua is Yahweh, the one God of Israel, at all. Okay? Now, the Bible translation entitled The Holy Scriptures by the Jewish Publication Society of America put out in 1917, 1945, and 1955 state this passage in Isaiah 9, verse 6 in part as this, And his name shall be called Pele Joez El Gibor Abiyad Sar Shalom. End of quote. This could be understood as one long name given to Yeshua, and that name that Yeshua had 
glorified his Father. Okay? In other words, when we called Yeshua this one long prophetic name, it brought glory and honor to his mighty God, to the truly everlasting Father from all eternity, or anything like this. And so this is another possible understanding of the text. Now, I don't, truly, I, I don't believe that this is the, the proper understanding of the text, but I give this as a possible understanding because I can see the possibility of it meaning this. And, you know, and it may turn out that, you know, I'm completely 100% wrong and this truly is the, the, the intent and the meaning originally of the text. I'm just not persuaded on that yet. I'm more persuaded of the first explanation that I that I gave in this in this sermon. But I just want to show in this sermon what we've learned before and what we'll continue to learn in the messages that follow. And that is that just because two individuals or persons share the same title doesn't mean they belong to the same being or they have the same essence, or they have the same nature. They're one and the same ontologically. It doesn't mean any of this. Titles, exactly the same, can be given to more than one individual, and yet those two individuals still remain completely separate in identity. You do not confuse their identity over the titles. We saw that with our Father, Abraham and Yahweh. We saw that with light of the world, with the disciples and Yeshua. There are also other examples where different people are called king of kings. You compare Daniel 2 verse 37, you have one individual being called king of kings. And in Revelation 17, 14, you have another individual, completely different, being called king of kings. Same title, two different people. The title is applied to them in two different ways. And so just as the Trinitarians recognize Yeshua as being Father in another sense other than the Father, so also is Yeshua El Gibor, our mighty God, in another sense other than the God. And this is what the Scriptures bear out time and time and time again. And it is wonderful to look into the Bible and come to these conclusions. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your blessings and your mercy. Father Yahweh, I pray that you would open the eyes, Father, of those that have not been able to see this blessed and glorious truth of the only true Mighty One and His only begotten Son, our Savior and Redeemer. Father Yahweh, we do not pray these things in a boastful manner. Father Yahweh, for it's by your grace and your mercy and your election that any are able to see. Father Yahweh, we ask that you would just continue to keep these truths near and dear in our hearts, that we would never turn aside from them, Father Yahweh, the sacred teachings of sacred scripture. Father, we thank you for a good understanding. We thank you for a proper understanding. And we praise you and we give you honor and glory 
that is due to you. We thank you so much for your only begotten Son. And we give him honor as well, the honor that is due unto him. Yahweh Father, I pray that you'd keep us in your word at all times. Let us study our Bibles as we leave this message. Let us look more intently at these things, continuously growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Master and Savior. For it's in Yeshua the Messiah that we pray. Amen.